This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. A pair of shire horses drag the fixed blade of a traditional mower through a meadow. It is Lemur's Day, August 1st, the day set aside by tradition for mowing. The animal's heavy hooves trace a path through the meadow. Behind them, the long grass falls on the ground, suppressing new grass growth and allowing a rich diversity of plants to flourish. Scattered amongst the drying grass are flower seed heads. Over the next few weeks, the seeds will fall to the ground and begin to germinate. Hay will be collected and baled up. Next spring, the meadow will spring to life again and this ancient cycle will continue. The rich mix of plants will support bugs and spiders. And these will provide food for hedgehogs and mice, birds and bats. For hundreds of years in East Anglia, and across much of Europe, scenes like this were part of the endlessly repeating yearly cycle of village life. But this isn't a 16th century village. It's the green space in front of one of the world's leading research institutions, King's College Cambridge. From its inception, this space has been maintained as a perfectly manicured lawn. A statement of man's dominion over nature of the wealth of the college and the status of its fellows. One that aims for order and peace, but that turns the chaos of nature into a monocultural desert. 
With the lawn's transformation into a meadow, the gardeners and fellows of King's College have created a space that draws on the past to create a more sustainable future. And the research done here will help to inform new ways of building in England as a new Environment Act is brought into law. From January of 2024, developers of all large projects will need to deliver a 10% net gain in biodiversity on their sites. From April, this will apply to all projects. And this month, November 2023, guidance will be issued that explains how to comply with the new regulations. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Rian Owen. And I'm Johnny Dowling. Today we're looking at how developers can bring nature closer to where we live and work. And we'll find out how the impact of planning decisions on biodiversity can be measured and regulated. The first step in monitoring any impact is to measure your baseline. And that almost always takes getting closer to the subject of your study. first thing we did was to go out and do our baseline when it was a formal lawn and that was just me the, the, at the project inception it was just me <laughs> it felt a bit I felt a bit did feel a bit funny <laughs> on the on the back lawn with a, a quadrat looking at the grass <laughs> in detail. Cicely Marshall is a botanist, plant ecologist and conservationist. When the college's gardening committee, including head gardener Steve Coggill and research fellow Jeff Mogridge, proposed turning the 400-year-old lawn into a meadow, she set about planning how to research the work's impact. It's a long way from much of her academic work, which looks at botany and ecosystems in West Africa and the tropics. But she's been able to turn those skills towards demonstrating how we can build biodiversity on one of the world's most developed and crowded islands. With her quadrat, a simple metre-square wooden frame, Cicely was counting the species in the lawn. In the years since 2019, when the meadow was laid out, Cicely has returned each year to take a new count. You record what species are growing and what their abundance is roughly inside your square, the square sampling frame. For spiders and bugs we use two methods one is a sweep net which is like a like a large canvas bag on a on a on a, on a stick and you sweep it through the vegetation and it knocks um whatever's kind of clinging onto the vegetation into the bag and then you put your head in the bag and uh, um, pick out what's there and identify it we also use pitfall traps which are um cups beakers or something dug into the ground so it's flush with the ground and then any uh, invertebrates that are wandering along the soil fall into it and that's your sample. We also studied the bats um, and we did that by um, recording them, um, audio monitoring. Uh, uh, it records in the ultrasonic uh, range so you can hear the, the echolocations and the, um, the echolocation is particular to each species so you can use those recordings to identify what species are using the lawn and the meadow, yeah, and, and roughly what their behaviour is while they're on the meadow. This counting of species is accompanied by other measurements of the meadow's impact on climate and on people. 
The idea was to um, track the progress of the meadow from a, a climate change point of view, a biodiversity conservation point of view, and also a kind of public public attitude sort of um, point of view. Uh, for on the nature side of things, we looked at the plant composition, the spiders, the um, bugs, which is a particular group of, of insect, and bats. We looked at their yeah, abundance and species richness and the composition, so the type of species that are using the meadow. On the climate change side, we looked at um, soil carbon sequestration, so the amount of carbon that's being drawn out of the atmosphere and locked away in the soil. And then we also asked people what they thought about the meadow. Steve, Jeff and the gardening team's work has had a real impact. One that Cicely and the graduate students she's working with have been able to measure. It has changed absolutely year on year. Um, well, I'm just talking about the plant species now. We sowed, uh, we actually sowed two distinct mixtures of seeds. The first mix was a selection of species that we expected to do really well in that first summer. They have a short life cycle and they tend to produce lots of um, showy, like beautiful flowers. So those are your poppies and your cornflowers and corn cockles and corn marigolds. Uh, and they did really well, as we expected in the first year, produced this beautiful um, flower display. That initial short-term planting was complemented by other seeds, which take longer to develop. Uh, and then the second mix of species that we sowed are a more... that Well, they're perennial species, which means they take more years to establish their... They take a whole year to grow vegetatively, and then they flower. And those are the species that are much more typical of a hay meadow, an East Anglian hay meadow, which long-term is this the habitat that we were trying to recreate. So as each year's gone by, we've seen the those perennial species that are really typical of hay meadows have really kind of established themselves and they're starting to outcompete the um, kind of more showy annual um, annual farmland type um, flowering species. As these flowering plants grow, they support invertebrates, which themselves provide food for larger creatures. We get 25 times more um, invertebrate biomass in the meadow pitfall traps than we do on the lawn pitfall traps. Hugely more, vastly more biomass, which is driving these kind of changes all the way through the food chain. The measure that Cicely uses to monitor biodiversity is the same one that developers will need to use on their own projects. It's called the Biodiversity Metric 4.0. You can find that on the Natural England website. Yeah, so while well, we measured species richness and abundance of 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 animals and uh, the composition of the species. So we found three times as many plant species, uh, three times as many spider and bug species, and we found that the bats were using the meadow about three times more. We recorded bats three times more often over the meadow than we did over the lawn, uh, and that's because they're using the meadow to forage for insects because we have this uh, higher um, invertebrate richness and also abundance. Cicely's research on the King's College Meadow shows that biodiversity can be encouraged on almost any site. Our meadow is, is, is relatively small. There are studies that show even two by two metres square, so four, four square metres of meadow uh, is beneficial for pollinating species in particular. So, um, well, bees, I think they looked at, um, yeah, bumblebees and solitary bees and hoverflies 
uh, respond well just to just to that small area. But to deliver the best results, spaces like this need to complement their local environment. And species need ways to get from one rich ecosystem to another. Animals need to be able to find your your meadow or your resource. If everything surrounding the meadow is not permeable to those species, then they won't be able to get there and you won't get the changes you're expecting. The research on the meadow will continue for years to come. I, I think we'll return to it. We won't, yeah, not every year because, you know, uh, in the early stages, every year is definitely very interesting. And then uh, as things settle down a bit, a longer monitoring time frame is, uh, is more appropriate. On new developments, that longer monitoring will need to take place over decades. 30 years is the uh, kind of horizon that um, planning departments work to. It would be up to the developer and the council to agree together an appropriate monitoring plan. If I were designing an ideal monitoring system, yes, it changes more quickly in the in the uh, first few years. So a year later, it would be absolutely worthwhile to come back and just check that all your trees haven't died or your, you know, your uh, flower um, flowering plants have germinated and are doing what you expect them to do. Um, and that, uh, yeah, and then you can um, space out the monitoring to um, maybe five years, say. And some of the beneficial impacts of a more biodiverse environment are only measurable at this longer scale. We measure soil carbon, um, well, we measured it in relatively simple terms, which is just the fraction of organic matter that the soil is holding. So if the soil holds more organic matter, then more of that carbon is, is locked in the soil than uh, in a, uh, a soil that has a higher mineral, like more mineral and less organic matter. Uh, we actually found no difference between the um, meadow soil and the lawn soil after two years, um, which isn't, yeah, it, it's not, it's, uh, which isn't very surprising because those changes do take longer to, to happen. But other impacts are more immediate. Students surveyed as part of Sicily's research overwhelmingly reported that they appreciated a more natural and accessible public space. And the way a space like this is managed may also offer environmental benefits, even on sites where modern equipment rather than shire horses are used. We just mow it once a year, which is much less than a, than a lawn takes. So the lawn we would mow every week or twice a week actually in summer. We would water it during the summer when it's really dry. Cambridge summers are really dry and we fertilise probably weekly as well in the growing season. Oh, you know, all of that is, is um, inputs and, and, and cost, yeah, time, time, money, and actually carbon emissions. By establishing the meadow, you reduce all of the carbon emissions that are associated with producing fertiliser, for example, um, and all the costs associated with buying those treatments. The hay mowed and baled at King's has been shared with the local community. When you harvest the hay, we bundled it, bundled stuff with a, a mini baler, these little hay bales, uh, and we gave them to other colleges to establish meadow from them, and the city council took some to scatter. It has the seed heads in it, so it's, yeah, it holds a lot of the seed, 
And if you um, take apart one of these bundles and scatter it over your lawn, some of the seed from the mix will take. And next year you would expect to have some like a higher proportion of wildflowers. But how can the research of Cicely and her team take seed on housing developments across the country? That is the aim of the new biodiversity net gain requirements of the Environment Act, which comes into force over the coming months, as Tom Butterworth, Head of Ecology at WSP, explains. We have a whole load of commitments that the government have made to biodiversity and to the environment. One of those is to embed biodiversity net gain in the planning system and make it a mandatory requirement across England for all uh, developments coming through from under the Town and Country Planning Act and also our large national infrastructure projects as well. And that's coming through in stages over the next uh, number of months. We've got larger developments, the major developments under the Town and Country Planning Act being required to deliver biodiversity net gain from January next year, 2024. Shortly after that, that will be followed up by the other developments, the minor developments under the Town and Country Planning Act later in the year, so in the spring of 2024. And then we're expecting the national infrastructure projects to be required to deliver biodiversity net gain in 2025. As well as his role at WSP, Tom plays a role in the development of national and international standards for biodiversity. I sit on a panel of uh, biodiversity experts uh, that look at the standards across the UK um, for biodiversity and for ecology. And we are um, constantly looking at reviewing and making sure that the standards are up to date and in place. Most recently, I've been working on the British standard for biodiversity net gain that was published a little while ago now. And that has been a huge support for the work on biodiversity net gain across the UK and in England. But then I'm also, and that group is also involved in the International Standards Organisation as part of the experts for uh, the BSI, the British Standard Institute. We then represent that expertise internationally as well. And most recently in that group, well, there's a whole range of standards being developed, but the one I'm working on again is the Biodiversity Net Gain Standard internationally, uh, helping to develop that. And and, um, I'm the lead author driving that forward. Tom and experts like him have developed BS42020, a code of practice for biodiversity in planning and development. That's currently under review, but is, Tom says, well worth a look. Another major British standard that should be considered is BS 8683, Process for Designing and Implementing Biodiversity Net Gain. But these are just British standards. They should be consulted by anyone affected by the new English regulations. Other approaches are being taken across the countries of the UK, which will likely also be covered by these standards. We've got similar approaches under a different guise uh, in Scotland and Wales. We've got um, uh, net positive outcomes for biodiversity. And I know in Scotland, they've just developed, they've just released some uh, publications looking at the um, potential metrics that they might develop in, in Scotland. Outside of the UK and the British standards system, other countries developing their own approaches, drawing on local and international standards. But there are other uh, routes through this as well. So Biodiversity net gain and the work around this has been around for a while, and the Business and Biodiversity Offsetting Programme set this out internationally. 
and it's being picked up. It has been picked up and developed very successfully in Australia. Each of the different states has their own approach, their own metric, and that's a requirement for the large developments. We've got a similar approach in Germany that's using a, a government-developed metric and approach to assess the impacts that development has and then what needs to be put back. Again, in Spain, France, uh, Canada are exploring different approaches. And and then in specific states in, in the United States as well, there's, there's metrics very often focused on specific species and making sure that we're putting back the habitat for specific species. So there's a large number of countries around the world now picking this up and, and driving this forward. Um, and the international standard is trying to help create some framing for that so that it's done to an appropriate and an appropriate way. The plethora of standards isn't coming about just because every government's bureaucrats want to do things their own way. The complexity of biodiversity means that every measure has to be appropriate to the outcome sought. There's lots of different ways that we can assess and measure biodiversity. So biodiversity is the diversity of all life and the interactions of all of that life. And those then interact with all of the non-living systems to create ecosystems. We can measure change in biodiversity at a whole range of different scales and levels. We can measure it at a, a global scale, at a country scale, at or, or an individual project. We can also measure change looking at the change at an ecosystem level, how the functionality of that ecosystem is shifting. We can measure change at a, the level of a habitat and how uh, we see a specific habitat changing in the quality of that habitat. And we can measure change for specific species, whether it be populations of species or communities of species. And there are metrics for each of these aspects. When the challenge is the potential loss of species, one appropriate measure is STAR, or the Species Threat Abatement and Restoration Tool, developed by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. That, uh, equally, there are metrics that use habitats, like the metric that we have developed by, the, by DEFRA for England, that looks at quality hectares, the, the area of the habitat and the quality of those hectares. So there are lots of different ways of measuring change in biodiversity, um, which creates quite a lot of uh, uh, noise and, and uh, debate about how best to do it. But there isn't one way that's better than any other. It's all about picking the right tool for the job at hand. So if you are in the UK and we have some really good data on the habitats that are present and we can measure the quality of those habitats, and not only that, we understand what the species requirements are, within those habitats. Your heathland, you might need a certain amount of bare ground, you might need a certain amount of uh, scrub encroachment and so on to create the right habitat for the species. Then a quality hectares measure is absolutely the right way to go. If on the other hand, you're looking at a large area where you've got some protected species and you need to make sure that what you're putting back is the right habitat for those protected species or those threatened species to avoid increasing that the threat to those species then actually something like the STAR, the Species Threat Abatement and Restoration Tool, may well be the right one to use. As Cicely explained, delivering biodiversity net gain has to start by considering your local ecosystem. That's the approach that has been taken in the new regulations in England. So the requirement from January is that the major developments under the Town and Country Planning Act will be required to deliver 
a minimum of a 10% net gain using the metric, it'll be called the statutory metric, that will be released by DEFRA. It'll be released this November. Um, and it's a quality hectares measure of, uh, so it takes the area and the quality of those uh, habitats that you're impacting as a way of assessing uh, the impact you're having in any compensation you're putting in. Developers can work out the steps they should take to maintain those quality hectares by following a series of straightforward steps. So the process is that you follow something called the mitigation hierarchy, which is a series of steps that we need to take when assessing and understanding our impacts on biodiversity. And the first step is to avoid impacts wherever possible. Um, and that's really important, really clear. And it's obviously the cheapest approach we can take because avoiding those impacts means we don't need to worry about doing anything else in terms of mitigation or compensation. The next step is to minimize any impacts we can't avoid. The third step is then to restore those habitats where we can on site. And then the last step of this is to uh, enhance or create habitats off site outside of that development site in order to compensate for any losses that we have after we've taken those other steps. It's important for nature and for people that offsetting when used is kept as local as possible. The impact of biodiversity changes matters more if you're in a dense urban area like London's Tower Hamlets than out in the countryside, somewhere like the Chilterns. We wouldn't want to see the loss of green space in Tower Hamlets only to restore green space in the Chilterns. Because the green space in Tower Hamlets is crucial for providing the communities that live there, the human communities that live there, space. Places to, to sit, uh, have picnics, have uh, you know, kick a ball around, whatever it might be. As well as creating spaces where the air quality is better. In recent years, carbon offsetting, which has been used by many big consumer brands to support net zero claims, has faced considerable criticism. Biodiversity offsetting under the new English regulations will be harder in many ways, but will not be open to the same criticisms. Within England, we're not accepting avoided loss as, an, as a way of uh, delivering gains for biodiversity. So let me just unpick that a little bit. Um, avoided loss is when you put in place some protection and you say, well, that forest would have been lost in the future because of whatever pressures are in place, and we've now protected it, therefore we can count it as a gain. Now, in some parts of the world, that's absolutely appropriate. But in the UK, where we're starting from one of the positions of having the lowest levels of biodiversity, the most ecologically degraded environments globally, that avoided loss hasn't been accepted. And so some of the challenges around uh, avoided loss not being an accepted way to measure change for carbon isn't going to play out for our biodiversity work within the UK because it's not accepted at the starting point. The metric used has been designed around the like-for-like like or better principle. If, for example, you lose a piece of beautiful woodland and replace it with a football field or a multiple football fields, it will also flag very clearly if you're losing a beautiful woodland and replacing it with one of these chalk grasslands that I mentioned. That will flag as unacceptable as well. Um, because if you're losing that beautiful woodland, we need to put back a beautiful woodland. So that's embedded in the metric and it 
means that you can't issue a metric saying, yes, we've met our requirements for biodiversity net gain unless you meet these like-for-like or better principles. And the all-better bit is just to say, if you're starting with a low-quality habitat, if you're starting with something that ecologically is a low quality, perhaps a grassland that's only got one species of grass and or two species of grass and some clover, if you are replacing it with something nicer, like the chalk grassland example, then that's acceptable. That's okay. Because you're going, that's the better principle. And again, that's embedded in the metric. So how will planning authorities ensure that biodiversity net gain is delivered over the life of a project? So within England, there's a requirement within the Act and how it will be played out for our developments for the habitats to be managed over the long term. And they've set out that that should be 30 years from the point of the uh, uh, development being completed. Funding will then need to be set aside to ensure that work can be continued as part of the planning process. When the habitat is created on site, so within the development parcel, then absolutely, then the the money will sit with whoever's looking after that site, and that could be a management organisation. Yes, uh, lots of housing developers set up uh, management companies to manage the estate that they've created whether that be managing the, the roads and, you know, and, the, the, and so on, as well as the green space. And it, it depends. Different places do it differently. Sometimes the roads are passed to the local authorities to look after. Sometimes the green space is. But very often a management company can do that. And then you can set up a community that are inputting into that. The people that are living in that space can then input into that and shape that, which I think is a brilliant way to go about it. Over such a long period, fate or climate change or even bad decisions may impact a site. Mechanisms within the planning process will ensure that this is monitored and any losses in biodiversity are avoided. But who will help councils and other authorities to ensure this happens? The government have said that they are putting forward 15 million to assist local planning authorities to prepare, which sounds fantastic and is fantastic. It's also not very much if you split it by all of the local authorities. It comes down to not very much money per local planning authority. It's really important that local planning authorities have access to ecological expertise. It's really important that they have that for their existing requirements, whether it be under the the requirements for our protected species and protected sites, or the requirements about uh, uh, accessible green space. There are a whole range of existing reasons why having access to ecological expertise is important for local authorities. This just adds one more clear reason. Are there enough ecologists out there to take on this new work? We never have enough ecologists. We always need more. I think ecologists should be in charge of everything. Um, but <laughs> but seriously, um, no, we probably don't have enough right at the moment. There's a shortage, especially at certain levels, a sort of more senior level, there is a shortage of ecologists. But equally, having said that, There are fantastic ecologists coming out of university every year. And when I started, long time ago now, the jobs were really limited. It was academia or working in a charity. um, And and that was about it. Since then, we've seen an absolute massive increase in the demand for this area of expertise. 
And the work of those ecologists can now be made more efficient using modern tools. There'll always be a place for those simple quadrats, sweep nets and pitfall traps. But they will be used alongside more cutting edge techniques. This is something that's really exciting and really interesting at the moment. We are seeing the use of digital techniques really blossoming when it comes to assessing biodiversity, whether that be remote sensing using satellite data and aerial photography or using drones to take photographs, collecting DNA from the soil or from insects or even from the air to gather information about the species present, whether it's using bioacoustics, so listening uh, and using the sound to identify the species and the level of diversity, or camera traps and then using AI to identify um, the species that are walking past those cameras and using our phones to and 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 um, tablets to help record data, whether it be map data on habitats or identify species um, and tag photos to specific locations and so on. And it means that we can assess the potential impact on biodiversity of a scheme before we even go out on site. Um, looking at optioneering, we might have a road scheme with three, four, five different options for where that road can go. And we can now assess that from aerial photography, from uh, other information, and the likely impact of biodiversity between those five options. And using the biodiversity metric, we can then give a very clear mes message to the uh, developer, which one is going to be uh, easiest and cheapest from a biodiversity point of view. And which one is cheapest is the one that avoids the most biodiversity, the one that has the least impact, coming back to that mitigation hierarchy. Soon then, developers will know in more detail what they'll need to do to comply with the new requirements. But how ready are they? Helen Newell works for Barrett Development, one of the UK's largest house builders. A trained ecologist, Helen worked with companies in the extractive sectors as they developed their own biodiversity strategies. She joined Barrett after the company had formed a partnership with the RSPB, or Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which was focused on creating a biodiversity strategy for a major residential development, Kingsbrook in Aylesbury, northwest of London. The starting point for Barrett's strategic approach was an update of the NPPF, or National Planning Policy Framework, that highlighted the importance planners intended to give to biodiversity net gain. We have been really um, involved since around 2017, 2018, when the first biodiversity net gain guidance came out. We recognised that uh, with the update to the NPPF talking about uh, measurable biodiversity net gains, um, we realised that um, local planning authorities and the government, uh, as well as other environmental stakeholders, were becoming much more interested in this as, a, as an opportunity to reverse the trend in biodiversity loss that we, we are um, experiencing in the UK. And with that kind of movement, we realised we needed to start thinking about this uh, at a site level. How does that actually impact our developments at a site level? Uh, what, what were we going to have to do um, to incorporate a net gain principle within our building processes? The first step for any biodiversity net gain strategy is to know your site. 
Barrett, as it pioneered a company-wide strategy, wanted to look back at its sites and see what it had got right and where it could learn to do better. And by doing that, by um, looking at some some sites, we did about 10 retrospective analysis using um, a biodiversity net gain assessment uh, to see what that would have done to our, our developments. And using that process, we, um, we learned a lot from it, realised that to be able to effectively and efficiently incorporate a biodiversity net gain strategy into our developments, we were going to have to incorporate it right from the very beginning, when we start looking at land and then involve um, our land and planning teams, we're going to have to involve our technical teams, we're going to have to involve our construction teams, everybody, all the way through the whole life cycle of the, the building process. So it was a really useful experience, actually, having the, those retrospective analysis done on those 10 sites. At the time, Helen explains, there were a number of biodiversity net gain metrics being used. These, as we've heard, have now been formalised into a single metric used in the regulations. The details of this will come out later this month, in November 2023. I think we, we've got to a stage where the, the metric is as robust as it possibly can be. I think if there are going to be any changes, it will be uh, associated with conditions and things like that. But we, we won't know for certain until, until it comes out. And Natural England are very good at um, explaining what the differences between the two metrics are and have uh, you know, I- incorporated um, all of the responses to the consultations and uh, into, into the updated metric as well. But at the start of the Kingsbrook project, there was no agreed metric. Instead, Barrett worked with the RSPB to develop their own ecology-based approach. Our North Thames division had uh, a need to um, partner with an organisation that was going to help them deliver a development that really incorporated a lot of the principles that we see in the net gain process, actually. But this was pre-net gain requirements. The best candidate for that role was the RSPB, who were able to work with the division to understand what the baseline was and what the uplifts could be, what, what kind of initiatives we could be putting in place to help satisfy local planning requirements uh, for that site. Birds are one of the biggest and easiest to count predators in any environment. To have a flourishing bird population, a site must have a flourishing insect population. And those insects themselves require a healthy ecosystem of other insects as well as plant life. Birds are um, really important as an indicator species. They do tell us a lot about how the the food chain is working, where there's a a large number of invertebrates around, uh, insects for for them to, to, to feed on. By working with the RSPB, Barrett could both find ways to measure biodiversity and specific steps that would deliver biodiversity net gain. So included things like uh, wildflower meadows, wildflower verges, having orchards and biodiversity-rich SUDS systems as well. SUDS stands for Sustainable Drainage System. Um, And of course, that was just on the outside, on the peripheral. But inside the, 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 the development and the hard um, uh, standing of the development, we've also got hedgehog highways, we've got swift nesting bricks, um, and, and, and um, as well as a number of other initiatives that, such as wildlife friendly garden in our show homes, which helps um, to, to try and spread the message around what our homeowners can do for, uh, for their own gardens as well. 
An approach like this forms part of the mitigation hierarchy. The hierarchy is crucial to achieving biodiversity net gain efficiently and will form part of the new regulations. We need to start at the baseline stage. We need to understand what it is that is important for biodiversity uh, in our site that we that we're uh, looking at for development. Now those important habitats could be types of woodland, they could be types of grassland, different types of uh, ponds as well as rivers and hedgerows. Those are really crucial habitats for our biodiversity. The first step on the mitigation hierarchy, and this is one of the key fundamental principles of delivering a, a, a net gain project is the mitigation hierarchy. The first step is to avoid impacting on any of those really important bits for biodiversity. And by doing that, uh, we're not just preserving those areas for biodiversity, we're actually trying to incorporate some of that environment into our built, uh, uh, into our development, which is um, helps set the scene. So it creates this lovely landscaped area already mature and ready for us to, to um, uh, develop within. Once a developer has assessed a site and identified what can be left untouched, they must think about how they build, what they build and where they build. The next step on the mitigation hierarchy is about minimising that impact. So what can we do to minimise the impacts on, on our development from a biodiversity perspective? Maybe it's ensuring that we're not uh, uh, developing at certain times of the year that might disturb breeding birds, for example, or we're, we're protecting those areas. And then looking at our landscaping, what can we put back to that development? Once we've avoided all of the impact, minimised as much as we can, what can we put back to increase the value from a biodiversity perspective? Landscaping is such an important element in, in that to create those habitats that we, um, we need for um, pollinators that uh, birds can um, forage from. Those sorts of things are really important. So landscape architects are, are, are really crucial uh, and, and then working with our ecologists to, to think about what is feasible within the development is, is a, a, an important step in that mitigation hierarchy. Developers have plenty of ways that can increase biodiversity on their projects but they need to be aware that these work within a broader ecosystem, which must be considered in breadth and over the course of decades. Of course, you could put bat bricks into your, into your fabric of the building as well. There's opportunities for um, various other types of um, bird nesting bricks as well, not just swift bricks. Um, people sometimes put in solitary bee bricks as well, but you have to remember that those will need maintenance and they need to be positioned correctly within within the, the, the development as well. But that's just the nesting elements. You need to also have the foods for those species as well. So it's all fine and well putting in bricks into your into your house, but if you've not got anywhere for those species to find water or food, um, then you've not done the full job. As Helen mentioned, Barrett is working to ensure that homeowners and residential management committees have the tools they need to create that ecosystem. So, so with um, every new um, homeowners pack, um, they should receive a wildlife friendly garden um, brochure. So um, that will give them, and that was um, developed by the RSPB, and that's given to them to uh, give them some ideas of what they can be doing within their own gardens. Um, it's a really nice feature, and some of our um, 
um, sales and marketing teams actually provide our new homeowners with bird seeds and wildflower um, seed packets as well to help get them kick-started. Kingsbrook is a major project which will be ongoing for years to come, but the RSPB has measured the impacts of Barrett's approach on parts of the project and has seen encouraging results. Because the RSPB were involved so early on in the project, they did an initial survey um, and we have just finished uh, Village 2, I should say, we finished Village 2 a couple of years ago, but um, the RSPB went back and did follow-up surveys of some key species and their findings were that the uh, majority of the, the bird species that they surveyed had actually increased in number. Um, similarly for, for bumblebees as well. And that gives us immense hope that the features and the initiatives that we're actually implementing in Kingsbrook and across all of our other developments are having a really positive effect on species such as the house uh, sparrow, which is a red-listed species. But it won't always be possible to achieve that required level of biodiversity net gain within a project. That brings us to the final step in the mitigation hierarchy. It's the least best option, but one that should, over time, lead to a national network of biodiverse and locally appropriate sites. And then once you've done as much as you can, you've put back as much of that value as you possibly can, you've thought about the management of that for the next 30 years, if you're still at a point where you can't deliver any more uh, within the, the, the red line boundary within that development, that's the point when you start looking for offsetting your impacts and that is a, a mitigation action in another area that's hopefully as close to that development as possible. The regulations have been designed to make sure that any offsetting is at least as biodiverse as the original site and in the same way. One of the key requisites within the biodiversity net gain process is process is that you can um, only replace habitats lost with habitats that are of the same or better uh, quality. Um, so specific types of grassland can only be replaced by other grasslands if they're, they're um, specialised grasslands, but uh, similarly for woodlands, you can only replace that for woodlands, but arable you can replace with woodlands or grassland. It's important that offset sites compensate for biodiversity losses as close to the development site as possible. The biodiversity metric used in the regulations will be structured in a way that encourages developers to first seek offsetting in the same local planning authority and natural character area. Taken together, these requirements should push the development of new biodiversity-focused businesses. These will include offsetting sites that are well-spread, well-managed and well-monitored. It will also include service companies that do the day-to-day, season-to-season and decades-long work of maintaining biodiverse developments. So that's going to be a really important part of the net gain process is the continual monitoring and governance around those spaces that have been created to make sure that they're actually meeting the, the, the designs, essentially, to make sure that they're meeting the um, net gain that had been designed in in the first place. As we saw in the introduction, King's College has turned to shire horses and traditional tools to manage its small meadow. On a national, commercial scale, modern equipment and techniques will be needed. There's no 
real difference between the cost of uh, um, maintaining uh, an area of amenity grassland compared to a wildflower rich area. There's more cuts required on an amenity space, obviously, because it's more closely mown. But in a longer grass situation where it needs to be lifted and, and sometimes left so that the seed disperses again, it's a different type of management. But um, and in some cases can actually be cheaper maintaining that area. I think currently there's probably few of those management contractors that has the, the um, equipment necessary for that type of management but that will change in time and in fact I think you'll find that some management companies are now starting to employ ecologists as well. Barrett with the help of the RSPB has started to put biodiversity net gain principles into practice on the Kingsbrook site. This will now inform how they approach biodiversity across the thousands of new homes they build every year. But how can smaller developers and that new diverse ecosystem of service supplies and equipment companies learn from this experience? One of the really interesting things around biodiversity net gain is the amount of innovation that's starting to come forward now. We're seeing a lot of different organisations, uh, startup companies, um, using all sorts of tools and methodologies, software, artificial intelligence, lots of GIS applications as well, coming to, to the fore to try and help uh, developers and, and, and management companies as well uh, understand A, the impact that they're having, B, the, the potential opportunities that they can um, uh, put back in. Barrett has been heavily involved with the Future Homes Hub, specifically in their Biodiversity Net Gain Oversight Group. This is a, an amalgamation of developers really trying to get their heads around um, what the biodiversity net gain process means for them. So as part of that uh, org organisation, we've been helping to um, develop guidance for SME developers. Um, we've been helping them to create workshops as well. So there's a series of workshops being put on by the Future Homes Hub um, to help organisations understand and how to get ready for biodiversity net gain when it comes in in January 24. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the mighty Shire horse that pulls us forward is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn. <laughs>